Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Good morning. Welcome to uh, East Lake. It is uh, time change weekend, which uh, means first service was packed to the rafters. And second service, it's lunchtime for all of you in your brain. So I'm going to do my best to get you through this uh, as much as we can. If you're a first time guest, you picked a great day to come check us out. We are on part three of the series we're calling uh, This Beautiful Life. Uh, my name is Brennan, the teaching pastor here. And uh, the series has been uh, on this idea of resonance uh, and th- this idea that every once in a while that we can experience things in life that are, we would call them moments of transcendence. You wouldn't say that because you know, you're normal, but you would say you walked away from, uh, you, you closed that book, you finished that book, you walked away from that movie, you went to that festival, that concert, uh, you had that dinner with somebody where it was just like the lighting was right, the food was amazing, and on the drive home, you just had this like uplifting feeling about life. And you're like, I wish I could bottle that and, uh, and, and just experiencing that over and over and over again. And the problem that we've said is that when you try and go and recreate something, it's never the same. It's, it, you go back to a concert, you're like, ah, it was, the lighting was different. The people were different. It was just better. This is fine. And you, you can't really program those moments. You can only experience them. And, and oftentimes you don't even know inside of the moment that it's really a, a transcendent moment. It comes much, much later as you reflect back on it. And you wish so badly to kind of like copy and paste and have those all the time. And then, and then you'd really, with full genuine authenticity to be able to say, you know, ain't this a beautiful life? The reality is sometimes uh, those those things are few and far between and circumstances of life show up and, and you know, life feels unlucky. It feels un, 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 unblessed. It feels, I don't know. It's just been, it's been a while since I've had that. I want that, but I don't experience it. And so, you know, there's, there is a tendency to, for some to come in with an arms crossed sort of thing. And, and it's been quite a week for you or quite a month or quite a year, season of life. And I come up here and say, this, we're going to talk about this beautiful life. And you'd be like, I mean, is it though? I mean, you know, um, arms crossed, sort of cynical sort of outlook on that. And my hope would be that this would be a series that would kind of help to define what that is and then maybe take your eyes up a little bit on that perspective on it. So we've been looking at a, I've been walking us through a sermon that was delivered by a guy named C.S. Lewis, famous for the Narnia books back in the 40s. He spoke to a, a church in Oxford uh, on, on a message called The Weight of Glory. It was captured into a collection of essays, a book on it, uh, but it's really just a transcript of his message. And I wanted to break that down for us. Uh, what he said in one week, it's going to take me about four or five weeks because he's just better at it than I am. And I process slowly and repetitively. And I want to try and reinterpret it also for today's uh, text because it was written in the 40s, which is you know a different time of life and things were going on in the world that were different then as they are now. However, in some places, as you'll see today, like human nature is just human nature and not much has changed over uh, uh, that many years. And I think we're going to see that early on in this first uh, part of it. Our problem uh, that he begins with early on in this thing is this idea that uh, we oftentimes uh, don't expect enough from faith uh, or religion. Our problem isn't that we expect too much. We are far too easily satisfied in life. Here's this opening sort of quote to kind of set the stage uh, for what he said. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. 
when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I wish that wasn't true of me. And, and sometimes I know that you wish that wasn't true of you, but like sometimes you get going through life and all you want is just the Seahawks on TV, your feet kicked up, you know, and that's nice and it's great in that moment. And then you just do that repetitively and you're, and, and then somebody comes along and is like, are you going to do more with your life? And you're like, I don't know, this is really nice. You know what I mean? Uh, but then, then you realize like life, I want, I want it to mean something that I, I do feel like life is a, a gift and love is uh, of the point of this. And so what do I do uh, with, with the fact that I know, I know for me personally, I'm far too easily pleased sometimes. And I would love to challenge myself in this. And again, there are some things that never change about us and need no rethinking, but uh, this might come across as different than you're used to. But we said this, that Christianity itself, or the case that Christianity is made for in, in terms of C.S. Lewis, and the one that I try and want us to embody as a church as we reflect on this too, isn't about the abstinence of wants, but discerning the root of those wants. That if you, if you grew up in a church or a family where religion was held to this high esteem, where you came across and you hit, hit, hit your teens and your adolescent years and your, in your 20s and your college years or whatever, and it was about the abstinence of wants. I know you want that. I know you want to go do that, but no. And the answer was always no. And you're like, but it sounds fun. You're like, anything that sounds fun probably is a no. If that's the religion that you grew up with, then the, the problem that Lewis would have is it's not about the abstinence of wants, but talking about the root of what those wants are. Or as Augustine would say it in the fourth century from a, as, a, as a, a bishop of, of Alexandria, and he would, he would write all these fantastic City of God books. And uh, he, he said, it's, about, it's about, about disordered loves, that we live our lives in a disordered way. We love things we shouldn't love, and we don't love enough the things that we ought to love more. We treat things that are, should be a value of 10 in our life as if they're a value of four, and we treat things that should be a value of four as if 10. And so we enjoy, we waste our life with chasing after ambition and sex and drink and all these kinds of things, which are fine. They're fours, they're fives, whatever, and we treat them as tens. And that's the problem that we get to. And so he, Lewis is trying to draw us into this, like, this is a problem that we have. Um, and if you've ever felt like that, then perhaps what follows is for you. Let's talk about some of the roots of these desires. Let's look at this desire that you want. And what Lewis would say is that's a pointer towards something bigger. And that's what I want to talk about today. Like it, the things that we genuinely want, that's fine. It's fine that you want that. But like, what is it about that thing that you truly want? Because sometimes it's not that object. And you know this because what you truly wanted, you one, one day you woke up and you had, right? I just want to get past this marriage. I want to get like uh, past this divorce and onto this new life. And then I'll be happy. I want to get this job. I want to get this thing. You finally achieve it. You wake up and you think now, now things should work out great. And you are still dissatisfied. And we live with this, what he would call inconsolable longing that points us towards something more. And perhaps if there's something inside of us that can't not be, cannot be satisfied by anything that we find on this earth, then perhaps we were created for a different sort of place. Perhaps that's something in us that wants something more final, more permanent, more transcendent. This beautiful life in those moments that we try and grasp kind of disappear, but perhaps they point us towards an existence that we have been promised and one that we can look forward to in this. Uh, early, we said last week that there's a, in us a desire to be pleasing, uh, wanted or appreciated or loved, that when we see this in the, it, what's so obvious in the life of a kid, and I, I mentioned how they can, they can want you so badly to just focus on them and pay attention to them, and, and they, can, they, can, uh, they, they can spend 
they can sell you little tickets to come watch their little play that they put together in 10 minutes that somehow lasts an hour. I don't know how this works. They spend 10 minutes preparing it, but it lasts an hour. The math doesn't translate. Um, and, and they want so badly to just to, for you to be watching and you watch for a little bit and then, then you like check the scores on your phone and they're like, dad, 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 you're not watching. You know, and you're like, all right, all right, let me focus. Sorry. What is this about this, these kids that want my focused attention so deeply? And, and, and then when we get older, that, that, that thing doesn't go away. We just are get a little bit more strategic about how much we hide this, but we desperately want to be noticed and appreciated. And we said that last, last week that, um, one of the best things that we can hear, one of the things that Jesus offers out like as a carrot, as dangling a, a message of hope is he, he has this parable for these followers that he's preaching one day in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, where he says, um, there's a parable, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A master gave money to some people who went away for a while, he came back and expected to see from them how they invested their money and what it meant for them. And they came back with, the guy who had five was given five more or came back with five more. The guy who was given two came back with two more and one with, with nothing. And to, for those two that did what they were supposed to do, that, that verbiage, that hearing of that thing, well done, good and faithful servant. Why is that so appealing? Why is that such a thing like in built inside of us that at work, when we are six month review or our year review, like every once in a while, we need to be told, good job, well done, good and faithful. You've done what I've asked you to do. I, I, I don't ask much. I'm not asking for a raise. I just, I, I mean, I would love a raise. Don't worry, don't worry about that. But if you, if you want to throw that in, that's great. But more so than anything else, I just want to know that I'm winning. I just want to know that I'm doing good. Am I doing good? And we we look at this and we 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 struggle with this. Maybe that's been a struggle in in your marriage for a while. Is there's somebody who's just like, I just don't know that I'm doing what you're what you want from me. Like, I I, I just need to hear it once in a while. And you're like, I love you. I told you I loved you 25 years ago in front of the pastor. And you're like, I know, but that. And you're like, if it changes, I'll let you know. That's not good enough. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm going to need that a little bit more than just that one time a long time ago. I need to know that you're, you're, you're happy with me. All right, we live with that longing inside of us. Lewis would say that is a pointer towards something greater. Everything that you want, everything that you desire is a pointer towards something greater. What is that about us that we so desperately want to hear from our heavenly father who created us? Well done, good and faithful <clears throat> servant. So if all of those are pointers, to please God, to be a real delight or a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. In other words, that you and I all live with some sort of a weight or a burden of glory. That's the title of his talk, but essentially the idea behind that we carry with us, no matter who we are, no matter if you're religious or not religious, church is your thing, God's your thing, it's not your thing, whatever, that you and I live with just because we're simply human beings created in this way, a burden of glory. Let's define that for, for what it is. So um, from the Christian perspective, we as, Christ, as created, carefully curated beings uh, carry around with us this weight or this burden of glory. And some of you uh, know what this feels like. Some of you carry around like a responsibility, right? You're the you're the head of the household. Uh, you you're the one that kind of supports this whole family. You're the you're the parent who's kind of in charge. You're a single parent. You're a single mom. Uh, you're 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 uh, you're the business owner. It's your name on the storefront. It's your thing, right? Um, we we know that we can go through life, and some of us acutely feel this that there is a burden of which I as a business owner bear that no, like nobody else in my company knows about, right? They don't feel it. They work for me full-time. They put in the hours, but like they don't, it doesn't mean as much to them as it does 
to me, that's a that's a burden, that's a weight. Or it can come in, in the form of uh, you know family heritage, right? Depending on what your last name is, people might know you because of your last name. They know things about you. Or if they don't know you, they know your father or your mother, right? I, my, my wife and I have been going uh, quite a bit to all of these different volleyball games. My daughter's been playing volleyball. And so we go into all of these different schools and all these school gyms have these names above them. And like half the names in the gyms, I recognize them. like, oh, I had no idea. I know who that is. I don't know who that is, but I know that last name. I know who that probably represents in our school district. They're named after all of these people who did some great things that we wanna highlight and do this sort of thing. My, my, uh, my last name is Johnson, but it's with an E. It's Danish in background, but um, it kind of sets me apart from most Johnsons because it's really nice when people come and they're like, let me look you up in the system. And then you have to scroll through all these Johnsons. I'll be like, it's Johnson with an E. That's a shortcut. Usually cuts it down to about three or four people. And occasionally once in a while, they'll say, oh, Johnson, as in Daryl Johnson, which is my dad, who's been a pastor, uh, just retired in the community for 25 years. He was on Richland Rotary. He's just, he's a gregarious, outgoing, extroverted guy who is friends with everybody and everybody knows Daryl Johnson, right? And so they'll be like, oh, as in Daryl Johnson. And I, in that moment, have to take inventory. What have I said so far? What am I dressing like? What am I asking to sign up for? Do I want to say, yes, that's, the, that's my dad or never heard of the guy, please move on, right? In those moments, I bear a burden, whether I like it or not, of our family name. And my dad would remind me, and my mom would say this too, as I would go off into high school and, and leave for the day, right? She'd be like, remember whose you are, right? And it was always, you know, yeah, you're, you're a Christian, you're, but you're also part of this name and you're representing us in the family and the community. Some days I live that up well, some days not as much, but that's how it works. And regardless of your personal or parental heritage, in terms of the created world, Lewis would say this, we see this so obviously sometimes in like life situations, but in terms of the created world, we are at the apex of this, that we are not a happy accident, that, that, uh, that the point of the Genesis story is that God created the world that he made it all come together. And I'm not talking about creationism versus evolutionism, whatever you want to like perspective of that, which you think of the, the, the problem, the big piece is this was designed intelligently by a, a being to point somewhere and do something that there is a purpose and point to all of this. That is an inherent quality of Christianity. And he points at, it and he says in, in that story, he creates the, the stars and the moon and everything was fine. And the, the land and the sea, it's good. He created the plants uh, on the ground, the birds in the, in the air, the fish in the sea and all the good, 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 good. And then he comes to human beings and with human beings, he endows the most likeness to the creator than any other thing. That he looks at this and he says, this is very, very good. Actually, at first he says, it's not good because he's alone. He's gonna get into trouble. Let's bring in a helper. Let's bring in somebody to kind of counterbalance this person. That this humanity can be defined by a couple of different genders, different approaches towards this sort of thing. That we can do a fully or perspective on this piece. And that is very, very good. And you and I are built more like our creator than any other object in creation with intellect, with reason, with free will, with the ability to, to leverage discipline over our animalistic desires, to not think in the short status quo, but to think more long-term to say, I, I do want that, but I'm going to abstain from that now because of a long-term benefit thing for me in the future to which no animal sort of thinks of. Like they, they just operate in the here and the now, but with us, there's been this elevated level of reason for us that Christianity takes a high approach to this, that we live with a burden of glory based on the fact that we are human. 
in light of all this, that we have a responsibility with this too, that we, to to whom much has been given, much has been required of us, that I should probably do something with my life. That's kind of how we live with this. So whether or not your name or your parents name or family name is all written on the walls of a school building that's a very uh, obvious and uh, you know elicits an e- easy way to see this but the reality is every single person who walked down that ramp 15 minutes ago lives with a burden of glory and i don't mean to isolate the people who are watching online you too you just you know whatever it, you figure it out glory suggests here's what he says two ideas to me one of which seems wicked the other ridiculous either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion, therefore of hell rather than heaven. Because oftentimes competitive means I have more. There's only so much out there. If I get some, uh, if you get some, that means I I can't have it. So he's like, that's just a competitive thing. I'm not for that. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb, right? So glory in two parts. He breaks this down and he does this tongue in cheek a little bit, but this idea become this, that we live with this weight and this burden of glory. What is that weight or that burden of glory? Two parts, fame and luminosity. Fame and luminosity. There is something in us that we desire to be famous and we desire to shine. We desire to do something significant with ourselves. And fame is a tricky thing, right? Because if I were to ask who in here is famous, uh, very few people would admit to being famous because you shouldn't have to raise your hand if you actually are. That's how the whole logic thing works, right? If I was to say either raise your hand or point your finger, and if you're raising your hand, people would be like, you're just, that's not, your Tri-City's famous. That does not count, right? You know what I mean? That's like a lesser form of this thing. But if people are pointing their fingers at you, even if you don't have your hand raised, that would be an indicator of this thing. So that's a great question then. Who then is Tri-City's famous? What does it mean? How long, and the question would be then, how long can you walk around our one and only Costco without running to somebody that you know or knows you, Right? And, and set aside, and that's a fun game to play. It's a great party game or whatever. But set aside the question of, of being famous, even Tri-City's famous, a, quality, a qualitative good, meaning that's good in and of itself. I'm not quite asking that question. It's dubious, especially Tri-City's famous, to be fair. But we all live inside, or there, there lives inside all of us a desire to be noticed or a desire to be famous, a desire to be something. This is why we, uh, you know, there's a reason that, so, that social media took off. It creates this platform for us to be able to advertise ourselves to be like, look at me, notice me. And we, we, we love the attention. We love the likes. We get passionate. We, we, we do things more. We figure out what people like, what they want to see from us. And we feed that more, right? We do these, all, these weird sort of things. And, and, and we can criticize what that does for us or what that elicits out of us. And that, that would be a true, honest criticism. But the, the reality is um, that there's something there because it, that's how life works, that it's not like unique. There's not one person. And there can be something in us too, that in our, in our mature age, as we get older, and we're like, that's just silly, right? I don't want to engage in that. I'm so proud to let you know I'm not even on social media, just so you know, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that as myself. I am because I'm shallow, but... Uh, I'm saying you've met those people too. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. You'll have to send that to me in a link. I, I don't do Facebook anymore. Um, I'm, I'm beyond that, right? Yeah, okay, fine. But this desire to be noticed does not go away. What is that? Again, it's not the abstinence of this desire, but discovering what the root is in this. That's a key point to think about with this. So he says this, Lewis goes on and he says, when I attempted a few minutes ago to describe our spiritual longing, I was omitting one of their most curious characteristics. 
We usually notice it just as the moment dies away and as the music ends or as the landscape loses the celestial night. In other words, when you encounter one of those moments in life that leads to you going, man, it's a beautiful life. It's a reason for existence. This is amazing. This is one of those things. When the music stops, when things go away, here's what happens. For a few minutes, we have had the illusion of belonging to that world. Now we wake to find that it is no such thing. We have been mere spectators of this. Beauty has smiled, but not to welcome us. Her face, was not, her face was turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken into the dance. We may go when we please. We may stay if we can. We have this illusion that we belong there. We have this illusion that we deserve to be there, but then we realize we don't actually there, that it wasn't really about us. Talk to somebody who's been famous who's ridden that train for a while and then that fame begins to fade and eventually they can go out in public and nobody notices who they are. They begin to get cynical about life and and the nature of fame in and of itself and they go, it wasn't really us at all. It was just this weird thing about us. The The sense that in this universe, we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Pause here, I'm gonna leave this on the screen for a moment. This is what he says early on that we live with this inconsolable longing that we just, we try and get and then we achieve and then we don't have it. And we find ourselves strangers longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to have something, to show up somewhere, to have people respond with who we are and where we've been, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and the reality that we live with an inconsolable secret. We want to be noticed. My, uh, my grandpa, uh, they grew up, or he was, lived most of his life on the west side, Spanaway, just south of like Tacoma area, east of Tacoma area. Spent 40, 50 some odd years driving trucks for Pepsi Cola company. My whole life that I remember him, Pepsi Cola, he would come in after work when we'd go visit them and he had this blue Pepsi Cola jacket that he would wear and come in, take it off. Like Mr. Rogers, just take it off, put it in the, in the, in the thing and then every morning put it back on, leave. Same jacket every day that I remember. Um, and uh, he would always, when he would go, after he retired, he retired when I was like, man, in my teens, probably like 12, 13, something like that. Um, but I, I would always remember that we could go, they had a basement down in their garage. We would go into that basement and on the stairs leading down to that basement were, were tons and tons of Pepsi Cola products. You never could bring a Coke in there, ever. You'd be disowned from the family, written out of the will. But Pepsi, anything Pepsi was great. And I was in like that Mountain Dew phase of my life and, and Dr. Pepper, those were my, my two things. And so my grandpa could go at any time when he was working there and just take anything, the bonus of working there, just take what you want, take it home, you know, don't sell it, but you know, take it home and enjoy it or whatever. So my whole childhood growing up, there was always something on the, on the stairs. Whenever you went to grandma and grandma's house, grandpa and grandma's house, go grab a Mountain Dew on the stairs. Then my grandpa retired and they would let him uh, still come in and take what he wanted, but it, get, it began to be less and less. It began to be more diet, right? And less caffeine and less desirable for me. And, and I realized what it was is they would let him take, he felt like he had to take less and less. You know what I mean? He couldn't take everything that he, he didn't drink Mountain Dew or Dr. Pepper. He got that for us, the grandkids. But then when they were like, hey, you can only limit it to four, you can only limit it to whatever, then he began to get what he drank, which was diet Dr. Pepper or diet Pepsi or whatever, right? And so we'd go down and be like, we'd be complaining. He's like, well, I'm not paying for it. I've never paid for a Pepsi in my life. I'm not, I'm not doing that. You're getting what you get, right? And you don't throw a fit. And so then it began to be less and less. And eventually it would go down and be almost, almost slim pickings. And what would happen is he would keep going back, going back to go visit the old guys who used to work with. But those 
those people that he worked with would retire off and all the people who knew him, there'd be less and less and there'd be less of an inclination for them to provide for somebody who drove truck for them for so long, right? And eventually he stopped going in and it began to feel, I remember them talking about it, my dad talking to me about it because I would ask the question, why are we getting less and less? Grandpa began to feel like a stranger in his own workplace. For 40 years, it was, we're a family. We're the Pepsi family. You're here. We're going to take care of you, right? And like every good company tries to play this card of, oh, when you're here, you're family. You work for us, so we got you taken care of. Well, go back to that company 10 years after you leave. See how much of a family member you are at that point, right? Because they got to move on, right? It's a business. They're in for making money. I'm not blaming them, and I'm not, I'm not anti-Pepsi. I'll probably have one this afternoon. But what I'm saying is... You can go your entire life and for a long time feel like, man, I kind of own this place. I guarantee my grandpa felt like he owned that place when he walked through those doors. You've been there a lot long. You, you don't even like sign in when you walk through the door. You just walk through. But eventually you become a stranger. And then that reality sets in of that whole, this whole like life, it begins to kind of shape everything about it. You're just now a stranger. You're, you're a number. The doctors, you know, you, you've been going to this cafe the whole life, but she moved on. She doesn't work there anymore. He doesn't work there anymore. So now it's a new server. It's a new host. It's a new thing. And now you're just a stranger again. And the reality is a lot of life is we go through this and we, we find ourselves to be strange and it rubs and it makes us feel like less satisfied with life a little bit. And yet what this is pointing to is that is more of a reality than anything that we're used to. That we, what is it about that we that we don't like? Why do we not like that feeling? And perhaps there's something in us that points us towards, I wanna live in an existence where I'm not a stranger. That I don't, that it feels weird to be like the Cheers theme song, but you know what I mean, right? Like this idea of, of being known for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. It's not the abstinence of wanting to not be a stranger, but what is the root of that that is pointing us towards us? A God who recognizes, who knows us, who knows who we are. Paul, writing a, a letter to a church in Corinth, has this to say uh, in chapter eight, verse three. He, he's got this little, expo, you know, he's, he's uh, the guy who started this church or been a part of the, the initiation pieces of it. The Corinthians are a collection of letters he wrote back and forth to them, um, sometimes addressing concerns that they had, sometimes anticipating concerns that they had. Uh, but in chapter eight, he's given some specific instructions and he says uh, this to them, but whoever loves God. And then I, I just wanna pause there. I'm not gonna give you the rest of the verse at this point. We're gonna work through it. But what, what would you think comes after this? If he's writing as kind of an outside advisor to this young church that's trying to make sense of who Jesus was and who, if Jesus was legit, then what does that say about who God is, the God of the universe? What does that mean? If we feel like the divine presence made himself known through the person of Jesus, and we are then to then pattern our life after the way in which he taught and the way in which he lived, but whoever loves God, what? Receives eternal life? I mean, that would be a legitimate answer that we would say like, yeah, I mean, that verse would make sense. But whoever loves God, perhaps one of the answers could be, can know him. Whoever loves God can know him. If you love him, he makes himself known to you. And the more that you love him, the more that he makes himself known to you. Like this idea of progressive revelation or that you've been like this, there's a, there's a widespread of, of, of denominations uh, who believe in this idea of, uh, you know, he initiates this love for you and that, that you can know him, but other people can't. That's not what he says though. He says this, but whoever loves God is known by God. That This is what Paul actually writes in this text. 
Whoever loves God is known by God. And the wider context of what this verse leads us up to is we're going to start from verse one. I'll, I'll, I'll lead into this and we'll end with this, but in a different translation, but I wanted to get that out there so that you can see that, pin that up in your brain or whatever. And then let's talk through verse one through three. He's writing to a church who exists in a very, very pagan society. Um, Corinth was a uh, located right in between like the motherland of Rome and then all of these outside areas. So it was a, a transport of, or a, a center of transport, a lot of money. It would have been uh, like a little wild living, um, more wealth than people knew what they you know, knew what to do with a little bit, a little bit like a, the Vegas of old school world, right? Um, so a distance enough from Rome to kind of get by with laws that laws, different, different laws applied there than elsewhere. And, and more, again, more money than they know what to do with. And they had, uh, their pagan temples to all different kinds of gods. And these Christians are coming up and they're trying to like, how do we live and exist in a society that doesn't believe anything about what we believe? And we're supposed to live with these different morals and this way of doing life. And yet nothing around us is supporting our way of doing this. We know nothing about this. We live in America. It's pretty pro-Christian, even if it's not, uh, you know, you wouldn't say it's a Christian nation, but it's a, uh, but it's pretty uh, open. Like the founders were open to the idea of a freedom of religion here to be able to support this. And it's, you passed 20 churches on your way here this morning. You know what I mean? So it's not like we don't live in an anti-Christian nation. Uh, but these people would be like, how do we make sense of this? And one of the, one of the commandments that they were trying to help out with was there's a command like if, um, do not eat meat that has been sacrificed to one of these pagan gods in these temples. The process was people would come, they would make, even in the Christian temples, they would make sacrifices to God. They would burn some of it up and the smoke would be pleasing the aroma to the gods who existed out there. And the rest of the meat would be cut off and sent out and, and sold and to raise money to be able to fund all of the different temple programs. But this meat would have been kind of, uh, you know, uh, messed around with. This would have been uh, off off limits for, for those of you who consider yourselves Christians. Don't buy that meat. Don't go to people's houses who are enjoying that meat. And for these, these Christians uh, in, living in Corinth, they'd be like, that's easy for you to figure out in Jerusalem when everything else is supported by that. And we're like, we, we don't, they don't have pagan temples here. They don't, it's easier for them to figure out what that means. But for us living here, it's really, really hard. We don't know. We can't, it feels awkward for us to ask real quick, where'd you get the steak from? Just need to know. It's a religious thing for me. It's super weird. I'm gonna isolate myself and identify myself. The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol. In other words, many of them have written about this. This seems to be a really felt need. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? We sometimes tend to think that we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions. We think we've got it figured out. We think, well, we know what we're supposed to do. But sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. Our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds because my from our mind, we reason that we get there. But there's something about the humility of our hearts to be like, but maybe I got this wrong. I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. I've gotten this invite to go to their house. So I wanna respond hospitably. I want to be somebody who is thankful for that kind of offer of generosity. Not somebody who's like, well, I can't because you're not really one of us. You know what I mean? Like, I don't wanna live like that, but I also don't, I'm living with the ambiguity of not knowing where they got this meat from. I don't know. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Or in Paul's other way of translating, or our way of translating Paul's writings there, in, in probably a more accurate literal text, to those who love God, God knows you. That God knows you or is known by God. Translation, what, is, what does this mean? What do you mean, Brent? What I mean is this, there's these people who are trying to make sense of what I'm supposed to do, and I'm really not sure. 
And I, I don't want to live like a jerk, rejecting the hospitality or the generosity owned by somebody, but I feel like I might not be able to obey all of the rules that I think are expected of me. So I'm not sure what to do. And Paul would say, listen, when you, when, when in those situations, God knows the motives of your heart. If you love God, he knows the motives of your heart. Meaning for us, when we go and we're like, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if this is right. I'm like new to this Christianity thing. You, you, you grew up in a church where, where, or, you know, you didn't grow up in church at all. And so then you started coming and people are like, you went to a church somewhere and they like, they criticized the way that you lived and thought and didn't whatever. And you're like, I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of all of this. What do I, I don't even know what to do. The, the, the words of Paul here is it's okay. It's okay. As long as you go out of the genuineness of heart, you don't have to get everything right. We'll work those things out. In the, and and, and th- that kind of a freedom, I hope, is exercised with this, this idea of, of, of I'm, I'm not sure what how this plays out, but I want to just trust that God knows my heart, that I'm doing the best that I can, that I might not always get it right and I might not do things correctly to the book. And there might be other, you know, church, more, more religious people than me who are definitely further down the road than me and be like, well, I wouldn't do that. And you're like, I'm so sorry. I have no idea. I'm just trying to make things work. That God knows our hearts in this way. That he knows us. Listen, and that longing in us, that we so desperately want to do good by God. We want to know that he knows us that he's generous with us, that we're, not, we're, that we're not trying to like do good enough things to gather his attention. Be like, look at me, look at me. Am I worthy enough? Can I hear well done, good and faithful servant? That there exists in us a desire to be known, to be famous, but not because by people who live in the tri-cities with us, but to be known and appreciated and loved by our creator who created us. That that little thing of us in us that wants to be known is a pointer towards something bigger and greater, a fullness of being known by somebody who actual, whose actual opinion of us matters deeply. So it's not a pain to be, it's not, a, it's not wrong. It's not the uh, abstinence of, of wanting to be famous, but who, who, for, for, from, from who, for who? That's what's important. And then secondly, a desire to shine. This weight of glory that we live with, this luminosity piece, and he makes this joke about being electric light bulb. It's not what he was talking about, but you know what it means to be like, I want to do something. I want a responsibility. I have a responsibility to like make something significant of my life. I go out into nature and I look at the beautifulness of nature and I look at the mess of my own life. And we live so often with like, the, like the, we know ourselves and we know our flaws and our, our, our shortcomings and all of the things. And we have, tend to kind of sometimes have a lower view of ourself based on this. And we look at the lives of other people and it seems so great. And, and again, we can go out into nature. This is what he's gonna say. We go into nature and nature's such a pointer for us of how big and immense and how grandiose all of this existence truly is. He writes this, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it to ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is why we people air with air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves. This is why in our mythological writings, we write animals who can talk. We write into like these, all of these, you read Lord of the Rings. And we, why are we drawn to fairy tales <clears throat> where nature and humanity have sort of a more symbiotic sort of relationship that you can't weed those two things out together. Why do we do that? Because in us see something beautiful and perfect in nature that we want to match with ourselves. We want to live into that. I want to live there. This is why when you're, you're scrolling through some Facebook stuff that you, if you have, if you're doing life with a significant other, you, you see someplace beautiful, some garden somewhere, some monastery at the top of the hill, some beach, some, the blue hole in Belize or something like that. And you send this, you send a link to somebody and be like, let's go there someday. 
I do this 10 times a week with my wife. Let's go there someday. Let's go there someday. And she's like, you have a job, you have kids, you have a church, you have, <laughs> you know, all these, ah, that's just reality. Let's, let's forego reality for a little bit. Let's go there someday. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We look at this thing that is beauty and we say, that's external beauty. And we see the mess of ourselves and we like, <clears throat> all we see in us is the flaws. Whenever we look out at nature, all we see is the perfection. There are flaws out there, but we overlook them. We just don't do that. We don't give ourselves that kind of grace. When human souls have been as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, in other words, we have more opportunity to respond to the goodness of God than creation does. Then they will, be, then they will put on its glory or rather the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. That yes, it's beautiful. <clears throat> yes, when you go out and see all of the, the, the northern lights, the, the, the cliffs of, of, of Northern Ireland, when you go and, and you see the beauty <clears throat> that is wherever all the places that you want to go on all of that list thing. This is great. It's only a first sketch, according to Lewis. Nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. When all the suns and nebula have passed away, each of you will still be alive. Each of you will still be alive. <clears throat> In other words, the immortality of our souls far exceeds the beauty that we experience in nature. That nature is good, it's a pointer towards something greater. And yet, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, right? Because what do we do with this now? The cross comes before the crown. The cross comes before the crown. The cross represents what? The sacrifice, the loss, the pain, the suffering. The suffering becomes before the crown. This is why you work before you play. This is why you have to save and then you get to spend. This is why you work for 40 years and then you experience retirement, not the other way around. The cross becomes before the crown and today and tomorrow is a Monday morning. And we all know how we feel about Mondays. So he's not denying the reality that I don't feel that right now though. I know. I know that life is is beautiful and yet like to like, but. I feel that when I go on vacation, but then when I come back here or when I go and visit places, I'm like, I'm struck by the nature and how beautiful it is. But then in my doldrums of my daily existence, and he would say, ah, yes, but the cross comes before the crown. Tomorrow's a Monday morning, but a cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world. And we are invited to follow our great captain inside. To do what? To have an elevated view of our sense of who we are and our being and what we have been created to be. That we are not an accident. We are not, synapses and atoms kind of meshed together by accident, but an intentionally curated being worthy of the glory that we have received, a glory to be known by our heavenly father and to shine brightly beyond that, that what we are, that our souls exist beyond this world, that when all of this goes away, that there is something even more beyond for us. That if you've ever felt like Christianity has offered a lower view of the body, like um, we have to like, discipline ourselves into this or, or down, look down upon ourselves or uh, whatever, or we hope for a, an existence somewhere else that we can finally escape out of this and, and finally experience life as it, as it truly is, is to miss the point of all of this. That the human being is that the apex of this creation, that you've been blessed with a gift, with a soul that exists inside of you that goes and exceeds far beyond nature. And that then is going to affect how we treat not only ourselves, but those that we rub shoulders with and marry and snub and send emails to. And did you get this email? And per my last email, as a reminder, I've already sent this to you, but I'm sending this again, right? All of these things that we do, it's going to be shaped, but it only comes with that burden of glory once it's realized 
that we all exist regardless of whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, religious or not, whatever, a burden of glory to be known deeply, to not walk around as strangers in this universe, but to be known by a heavenly creator God and to shine brightly, to mean something. May that be something that shapes the way that you interact with people, the way that you view yourself, the way that you self-talk this week about yourself, the way that you talk emotionally through the ups and the downs, the bad weeks, the good circumstances, the luck that we have, the bad luck that we have, the whatever it else it is. But may you and I live with an elevated view of our glory that we have been carefully curated by a loving God who desires so desperately to be in relationship with us. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us this week to live with that truth and that reality in our life. We are, uh, we are thankful for those brief moments where maybe those truths shine through, through the holidays, through, through uh, experiences with uh, family members and loved ones. Uh, when we, when we, read something or, or whatever that, trans, that provides that moment of transcendence for us into a life that is worth living. May we recognize in those moments that it's not about trying to recreate those or capture those or bottle those up, but to see those as a, as a pointer towards some uh, future glory. May we then also respond with, with much uh, who, that has been given, much has been expected of as well and respond appropriately with the responsibilities that go with that. Give us the wisdom to what that looks like in our life and the curse act on it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.